This episode is brought to you by the talented blues guitarist and gospel singer who literally created the genre of rock and roll. In fact, their 1944 song, Strange Things Happening Every Day, is considered to be the first rock song ever. An artist whose legacy still resonates so heavily that Lizzo even paid tribute to her during her SNL performance. Rock music wouldn't be anywhere close to where it is today without the influence and talent of sister Rosetta Tharp. She had her roots in gospel music and set all on her own after a failed first marriage. Through her hard work in New York City nightclubs, she caught the attention of Decca Records and became the first gospel singer with a recording contract. Unfortunately, with her record deal came a switch in her music to more secular themes, a change most of her biographers believe she wasn't entirely comfortable with. This interpretation is further confirmed by her near-immediate switch back to gospel-centric music after her record deal was up. By the time she was recording gospel music again, other male-centric rock acts like Chuck Berry and Elvis Presley were becoming more mainstream, and her tone of music kind of pushed her towards the edges. Nevertheless, Johnny Cash named her as his favorite singer in his speech for his induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Besides Cash, Tharp inspired everyone from Cab Calloway to Little Richard. In addition to literally creating an entire musical genre, Rosetta Tharp was also creative and romantic partners with pianist Mary Knight. The two were linked together throughout the 40s, and Marie was with Tharp in 1973 when she suffered a deadly stroke. Indeed, it was actually Marie who did Rosetta's funeral makeup and dressed her for burial. And while some people may say that Tharp and Knight's relationship has never been 100% confirmed, I don't believe I have any friends who are close to me like that. Anyways, welcome to Out of History. This means that we can walk the streets as ourselves and not be harassed by anybody. Just be ourselves. Be proud to be ourselves. I think we need a radically new definition of what it means to be masculine. Welcome back to Out of History, a queer history podcast. If this is your first time listening, welcome. And if this is not your first time listening, welcome. I hope you'll find something new and interesting, and I hope that the stuff I talk about today will be a nice little catalyst for you to delve into your own sort of esoteric history. Now today, considering, you know, everything going on right now, I thought it would be pretty interesting to go a little presidential. So what comes to your mind when I say the name James Buchanan? Even though I just gave out a super big clue, if you're an adult who hasn't been in school for a while, you might think he's a football player or an actor. If you're familiar with U.S. history, you might recognize him as a past president. If you're really into U.S. history, you probably know him as the president for Abraham Lincoln. Among those who rank presidents, he is often named the worst one because of his inability to prevent the countrywide tensions, which eventually led to the Civil War. 
So let's quickly go over who James Buchanan was both before and during his presidency, and then we'll talk about why he's the focus of this episode. Let's just jump right in. In a lot of ways, Buchanan managed to settle himself right on the wrong side of history on pretty much everything. For instance, when he first began his foray into politics, he was a staunch supporter of Andrew Jackson. Yes, exactly. That Andrew Jackson. And a defender of states' rights. Buchanan thought that the issue of slavery was the domain of the states, and he faulted abolitionists for exciting passions over the issue. His support of states' rights was matched by his support for Manifest Destiny. And I know, it's been a while since you've taken a social studies and civics class. Basically, let's quickly go over Manifest Destiny, which was the belief that America had a right to extend as far as she wanted to. It's basically what caused us to go from the northeastern side of the country all the way to California. And uh, we weren't great to the people who already lived there because, you know, people already lived there. Anyways, so he was a Democrat before the party switched platforms. And if you're anyone who, you know, past high school, you'll know the parties switched platforms right around between like the 40s and 60s. Like other Northerners who were close with Southerners and shared similar ideology with them, especially, you know, slavery, Buchanan was known as a doughface, aka a Northerner who held Southerner-esque beliefs. Before becoming president, Buchanan worked his way up through the ranks of political office in Washington. He served as ambassador to Russia under Jackson's administration, secretary of state under the administration of James K. Polk, a position that led him to um, annex multiple areas of land for the United States particularly at the end of the Mexican-American War, playing right into his big, big love for expanding America's boundaries as much as possible. And he also served as ambassador to the United Kingdom during Franklin Pierce's administration, so this guy was pretty heavily into politics. Now, pretty much since Andrew Jackson left office, Buchanan had been attempting unsuccessfully to get the Democratic presidential nomination, but... During the 1856 Democratic Convention, he was finally leading on the ballot. The platform for this convention contains a lot of really cringy views, like support for the fugitive slave law, an end to anti-slavery agitation, and the U.S.'s ascendancy in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, it is really, really hard for me to talk about platforms like this, and remind everybody that this is what the Democratic Party was like now, then. Buchanan was presented as a candidate who could win in both the North and the South during a time when tensions were getting a hell of a lot worse. So he actually ended up winning the nomination. And because of his beliefs uh, towards slavery, he ended up winning every slave state except Maryland and getting 45% of the popular vote, which was an achievement at the time since he was running against two other candidates. This was before we had the uh, strong, robust two-party system we fight with every two to four years today. During his inaugural speech, Buchanan attacked Republicans for unfairly attacking the South, yet he promised to restore harmony to the Union under a national and conservative government. And if this 
all sounds very familiar, need I remind you that history is always going to repeat herself forever and ever. Amen. So, like all great worst presidents, um, Buchanan's presidency got started on a fantastic foot. Two days after his inauguration, the Dred Scott case was decided. So, it probably sounds familiar, but if you can't readily recall the details of this case, totally fine. I got your back. It was a landmark decision of the U.S. Supreme Court in which the court held that the Constitution of the United States was not meant to include American citizenship for black people, regardless of whether they were enslaved or free. That's a thing that happened. Therefore, the rights and privileges the Constitution confers upon American citizens could not apply to them. Black people. At all. So... Fantastic time in U.S. history. Buchanan was a fan of this decision. Yeah. He believed that a broad Supreme Court decision protecting slavery in the territories could lay the issue to rest, allowing the country to focus on what he considered to be more important issues, like the possible annexation of Cuba and the acquisition of more Mexican territory. Because this guy wanted to make America as big as possible. And he didn't care how many people living in this country he had to rip rights away from to get it done. Let's see. Let's go into some other great things he did while he was president. Uh, Buchanan also sent the army into Utah in July of 1857 because he believed the Latter-day Saints were in an open rebellion against the United States and sought to forcibly replace Brigham Young as governor of the state with a different man of his choosing. Yes, this guy is somehow even tied in with the Mormons, and Brigham Young. I mean, it's not like America has a weird history of displacing elected officials with their own puppet governments, right? Anyways, unsurprisingly, the growing issue of slavery further splintered the Democratic Party, practically paving the way for Republican Abraham Lincoln to gain victory. With Lincoln's victory, talk of secession and disunion reached a boiling point, and Buchanan was forced to address it in his final message to Congress. Both factions awaited news of how Buchanan would deal with the question. So how did he respond to this growing, looming, ethical threat to the very fabric of the nation? I mean, surely he's learned something by now. Surely he realizes the gravity of this situation and realizes that maybe siding with the people, keeping other people as property, was never the right choice to take. Just kidding. He denied the legal right of states to secede, but thought the federal government legally could not prevent them from doing so, which, to be fair, is, um, is true. He placed the blame for the crisis solely on intemperate interference of the northern people with the question of slavery in the southern states, and suggested that if they did not repeal their unconstitutional and obnoxious enactments, the injured states, after having first used all peaceful and constitutional means to obtain redress, would be justified in revolutionary resistance to the government of the Union. Let's remember, this country, the one we live in, was not even a hundred years old at this point, and he's already totally ready to splinter it. Buchanan's only suggestion to solve the crisis was an explanatory amendment affirming the constitutionality of slavery in the states, the fugitive slave laws, fantastic, and popular sovereignty in the territories. Obviously, this statement made no one happy. 
His address was sharply criticized both by the North for its refusal to stop secession and the South for denying its right to secede. So, I mean, honestly, he was in a no-win situation, but he also managed to just piss off both sides, really, royally. Uh, Just two middle fingers on his way out the door. Then, Lincoln took office, and America was fine from then on. Just kidding. Many Southern states seceded, and the Civil War, the most devastating conflict in American history, happened. But you've heard that story a billion times. If you've gotten this far, you've probably noticed I've made very few positive statements, if any, about James Buchanan. And there's a reason for that. His beliefs have not in any way, shape, or form stood the test of history. While I don't agree with calling him the worst president ever, we've certainly had some pretty bad ones. And I don't think there's any president who didn't do at least one awful thing in office. His inability to take the issue of slavery or secession seriously during his presidency certainly puts a blot not only on his own history, but the nation's as well. Let's talk about something besides his terrible, awful, no good, really, really bad politics. La 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 la. Politics are a matter of opinion. Whatever. I don't want to hear it. Start your own podcast. Besides everything I've stated above, Buchanan is also known as the only president to serve as a bachelor. Yep, there was no Mrs. Buchanan and there was no first lady, at least not one he was married to. His niece, Harriet Rebecca Lane Johnston, what a fantastic name. She sounds like an American girl doll and I am in it, served as his first lady during his presidency. Throughout his life, he was only briefly romantically tied to a wealthy woman named Ann Coleman. Um, the marriage never went through, and many people speculated that the attachment was based more on her significant wealth than any genuine affection. In the end, he was so busy with his law practice that Anne ended up calling for the dissolution of their engagement. So he basically courted this woman and was like, Ayo, let's get married, and then never paid attention to her whatsoever. It's a great tactic there, Buchanan. As far as we and history knows, Buchanan was never seriously linked to another woman during his lifetime. However, at the start of 1844, James Buchanan's political rivals were in a bit of a froth, particularly a man named Aaron Venable Brown of Tennessee, who was especially enraged. In a confidential letter to future First Lady Sarah Polk, Brown viciously went after Buchanan and his better half, writing, Mr. Buchanan looks gloomy and dissatisfied, and so did his better half, until a little private flattery and a certain newspaper puff, which you doubtless noticed, excited hopes that by getting a divorce, she might set up again in the world to some tolerable advantage. So, I just told you there was no Mrs. Buchanan. So if Buchanan wasn't married to a woman, or in a relationship with a woman, who is his better half? Let's explore it. During his time in Congress, before his presidency, he stayed, like other unmarried men in Washington, in a boarding house. This was a time before air conditioning and all sorts of nice modern amenities, and of course, before members of Congress had the large salaries to afford additional homes in Washington while they served in Congress. When Buchanan first moved in, the boarding house included other congressmen, um, I think roughly about five or six, most of whom were also unmarried. This gave the home the friendly moniker of the Bachelor's Mess. 
Mm. Over time, as other members of the group lost their seats in Congress, the number of people living there dwindled in size from four to three to just two. James Buchanan and a congressman named William Rufus King. Buchanan and King were extremely close. This is mostly due to them having similar politics. Similar, awful, terrible, no good, gross politics. Both believed strongly in state rights for the southern states in regards to slavery and were against the idea of secession. While I mentioned before Buchanan was a doe-face since he came from the north, King was from North Carolina. Um, he was very supportive of the idea of making a profit off of planting cotton, and he helped found the city of Selma, Alabama. Yes, that's Selma. Funny how so many places end up turning up over and over again. Of course, they also had their differences. When Buchanan started in Congress, he was pro-bank, pro-tariff, and an anti-war federalist. He held on to these views well after pretty much everyone else of the party had changed their mind about these issues. King, however, was a Jeffersonian Democrat or Democratic Republican. Yes, everything gets muddy in the 1800s. This was before we had clear titles for everything. I mean, the Democratic Party had only just gotten the donkey as their mascot. William Rufus King held a lifelong disdain for the National Bank. He was opposed to tariffs, and he supported the War of 1812. By the 1830s, both men had been pulled into the political orbit of Andrew Jackson and the Democratic Party. As I mentioned before, Buchanan also served in Andrew Jackson's cabinet. So, the two middle-aged bachelor Democrats, which sounds like a Chuck Lorre show that I may or may not watch. Anyways, they probably ended up being so close because they each had what the other one lacked. King exuded social polish and congeniality. He was noted for being brave and chivalrous by his contemporaries. His mannerisms could at times be bizarre, and some thought he was a little bit too effeminate. Buchanan, by contrast, was liked by almost everyone. He was witty, enjoyed sipping glasses of fine Madeira with fellow congressmen. Uh, while King could be reserved, Buchanan was boisterous and outgoing. Together, they made for something of an odd couple out and about the Capitol. Washington society also took notice of their companionship. They were called Mr. Buchanan and his wife. Um, they were also each nicknamed Aunt Nancy or Aunt Fancy. But... Is there any way to this assumption? Perhaps. Or else I wouldn't be talking about it. In 1844, King was sent abroad to Paris to serve as the ambassador to France. He wrote a letter to Buchanan before he left, saying, I'm selfish enough to hope you will not be able to procure an associate who will cause you to feel no regret at our separation. Which is cute. It's cute. I like it. On his way out of the country, King stayed with the Roosevelts in New York City. Yeah, those Roosevelts. History is funny. Roosevelt's are, they're somehow always involved. Uh, shortly after King stayed with the Roosevelt's, Buchanan wrote a letter to Cornelia Van Ness Roosevelt, wife of former Congressman John J. Roosevelt. Yes, the Roosevelt's have been in politics a long time. That's what happens when you have loads of money. Anyway, in the letter, he stated, I envy Colonel King the pleasure of meeting you and would give anything in reason to be of the party for a single week. I am now solitary and alone, having no companion in the house with me. I have gone a-wooing to several gentlemen, but have not been successful with any one of them. 
I feel that it is not good for a man to be alone, and should not be astonished to find myself married to some old maid who can nurse me when I am sick, provide good dinners for me when I am well, and not expect from me any very ardent or romantic affection. I'll just let you stew on that one for a second. I would repeat it, but you can just hit rewind. Now, to really talk about their relationship, existing or not, we have to briefly discuss the idea called chronological ethnocentrism. I know, it sounds really pretentious, but stick with me. Basically, this is the idea that history is constantly progressing, that we are more advanced than people living hundreds or thousands of years ago. Chronological ethnocentrism is the belief that we now live in a better society compared to past ones. In some ways, we definitely are. I mean, on smartphones. But in regards to social and cultural norms or upheaval, the story is vastly different. Basically, this concept allows historians to put bad things like, oh, racism, sexism, slavery, exploitative bosses, child labor, homophobia in the past, which unfortunately both robs people of a true version of history. Hello, ancient Egyptians and Scandinavians were often more progressive in their societies than our country is today, but it also prevents us from recognizing those ills in our society today because we're taught those issues are in the past and have already been dealt with. How many times have we heard people say that I don't know why people still care about racism, racism is over. I don't know why people still act like homophobia is a thing. Chronological ethnocentrism allows us to believe that we have already conquered those things, so there's no way they can still exist. The way society views and treats marginalized groups is not a linear uptick, but it rather shifts with time and social attitudes. Stemming from this concept, many people seem content to believe there's no way Buchanan or King could have been gay because there's no way 19th century society could have been more tolerant of the idea of homosexuality than we are today, right? According to historian Jim Lowen, Buchanan was fairly open about his relationship with King, which led the Washington elite to be comfortable referring to King as Buchanan's better half, among other names. Lowen notes that Buchanan's rumored sexuality was not a secret at the time. For much of the 19th century, American society was considerably more open and accepting than it was in much of the century that followed. I mean... At this point, I think we've all seen the documentary called Homosexuals from the 50s. So, like many public figures, and especially so because he was known to be a bit of a gossip, um, James Buchanan had most of his letters destroyed upon his death by his niece. So, the full nature of his correspondence with King has unfortunately been lost to time. And with it, we are left with the simple facts I've told you and the ambiguity of a very close relationship. Like, really, very almost weirdly close. When it comes to historians who have delved into the history of Buchanan, you have historians like Thomas Balsersky, who believe the two men were just involved in a very deep friendship, and others like Jim Lowen, who are convinced America has already had a gay president. So take that, Pete Buttigieg. I'm not saying either one is wrong. It's just a little obvious, I think, which one I agree with. However, as always, I implore you to do your own research on the subject, to make up your own mind about James Buchanan. I highly recommend Balsersky's book, Bosom Buddies, The Intimate World of James Buchanan and William Rufus King, and Lowen's book, Lies My Teacher Told Me, Everything Your American History Textbook Got Wrong. Don't worry, I'll link both of them in the show notes. 
So there is another reason I wanted to talk about James Buchanan, besides everything else I've stated above. Besides chronological ethnocentrism, there's another concept I wanted to briefly talk about, and that is of the model minority. For people in marginalized communities, there is a concept that they, we deal with every day, which is the push to be the model minority. And that is not so much because we feel like we are pushed to exhibit positive traits, but rather because if somebody encounters a rude lesbian and they already don't like lesbians, it's going to reinforce the negative attitudes they have about them. So there is definitely, if you've never experienced this, then congratulations to you. Tell me all about it. But there is a push to be the best you can be and to treat people the best you can and to be basically a model citizen because you always feel like you have to represent your entire group. So yes, while doing this podcast, there is sort of a push for me subconsciously to cover positive role models and positive figures and people who made a positive difference in society. But that is not a fair look at the LGBT plus community. Yes, there are amazing people in the LGBT plus community, but there are also assholes. And I think we can agree, James Buchanan is kind of an asshole. Did I mention that after he left the presidency, he spent the last years of his life writing a book about how the Civil War was the abolitionists' fault for trying to end slavery? Yeah. Not very many redeeming qualities there, but he's an important part of our history. So if you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to give me five stars because I would give you five stars. Also, like, review, subscribe, all that fun stuff. You can follow me on Instagram at outofhistory.podcast. I post fun little history memes and other parts of queer history that I may or may not be covering on the podcast in the future. And you can also shoot me an email. I said it wrong last time, so I'm going to try and say it right this time. It is out.of.queer.history at gmail.com. And I hope this episode is just another step in showing you that history is a lot gayer than you think it is. And don't forget, you are creating your own history every day. So make it a good one. I'll talk to you next time in hopes that someday there'll be no need to demonstrate the right to make love to anybody you want, any way you want, or you gotta start somewhere.